Alright, hey, what's up everybody? Uh, welcome into Living Off the Land. This is episode 222. I'm your host Dan here with uh, co-host Steven. Steven, how we doing? It's Wednesday night. Wait a minute, it's Wednesday night? Hmm. It is Wednesday night. Yeah. We are a day late, but we're not a dollar short because uh, this podcast is free to listen to. So, we've got a very hot episode tonight. Very appropriate because it is super hot outside today. It was over 90 degrees again. It is indeed. And let's just get right into it, starting with the beer of the week. All right. Well, so anyway, uh, beer of the week this week is from a Cleveland brewery down in the flats on the East Mm. Bank. This is uh, from Collision Bend Brewing Company, Mm. and it is called the Lake Erie Sunset American Wheat Ale. And I'll tell you what, it is absolutely delicious. I think we've had this on the podcast before, but it's been a while. So good refresher uh, for me here for Beer of the Week. Let's do a little review. How do you say wheat? Wheat. Wheat. Wheat, yeah. Wheat. Okay. Wheat bins. All right, stew. Stewie. (laughs) Uh, Let me just look up here. Collision Bend is one of my favorite breweries, actually, because... That's the place where I tell people it's to walk of, to when I can't get down to the to like. That's kind of hilarious coming from the, you having a favorite brewery. Because like when you try to get to the East Bank of the Flats at like two a.m. and you can't get down toward Inferno or uh, Forward or any of those other places down in that little cul-de-sac, you just tell them, "Hey, walk over to Beerhead or Collision Bend. It'll be easier to get pick you up there." There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Hold on, I'm just pulling up a uh, a rating here on Beer Advocate. It it's gets a oh they don't have a score. How about that? What do you mean they don't have a score? Oh, there it is. Three point eight. Three point eight stars out of five. I was gonna say very very good. Um, Not really much of a description. Uh, Let me see. Ale, so it's probably gonna taste a little bit like bread. I would imagine. Or no? Uh, yeah, it's <clears throat> well. Bre- I wouldn't say bread, but yeah. Okay. It's, it's got a little bit of a. Uh, it's like a craft blue moon. It's a. Uh, oh, okay. Let's see. Inspired by the stunning views from our Riverside Brew Pub patio, Lake Erie Sunset starts with a, with bold aromas of oranges. And finishes bright and tart. The perfect complement to a Cleveland summer all year long. So this is this is a perfect summer beer. Uh, it is fantastic. I love this beer a lot. I love the can. It's got a sunset vibe on the can with the yeah, uh, very one of the bridges down. Of, uh, yellows and oranges on there. I like that. This is absolutely a perfect summer beer. You could drink a bunch of these. It is, let's see. imagine that'd be a pretty good tailgate beer, too. It's brewed with blood orange. Oh, yeah, absolutely, especially early in the season. 5.6 ABV, 15 IVUs. Um, so <clears throat> you can uh, you can take down a few of these. I, I like this a lot. Uh, wheat beers was my essentially gateway into the craft beer scene. 
Um, it was the beer, wheat beers, Hefeweizen, stuff like that, were the first like craft style beers that I would drink when I um, got into the craft scene uh, with beers. Um, and yeah, it's just an easy drinking uh, beer that, like I said, you can drink a bunch of. And I really like it. And I am, it was ten ninety nine for the six pack over at Max Beverage. Shout out. I will say, and I, I don't know, maybe Saucy's not making this right now, but there was another beer that I was targeting to have a beer of the week this week. Okay. <coughs> the Cheaters from Houston were coming into town. Oh, boy. They're coming into town this weekend. Hmm. And Saucy Brew Works actually has a beer uh, on, to honor the Cheaters. It is called oh, Stealing. No it is an IPA. It's called Stealing Signs. Oh, that's very IPA. Yeah, right. And uh, that's what I wanted to get, but uh, they didn't have it at Max. Uh, I don't know if it's not in season right now. I don't know why it's base- why it wouldn't be. It's baseball season, but right. Um, yeah. So uh, this caught my eye, and like I said, we've had it on the podcast before. It's just been a while, so uh, I'm gonna go ahead and rate this. Uh, this Collision Bend Lake Erie Sunset uh, American Wheat Ale. I'm going to go ahead and give it a 7.8. 7.8. That's that's pretty great. That's very good. That is very good. Uh, I would certainly buy this again. I would certainly drink it on tap. As uh, It's widely recognized that beer on tap out of a keg is better than canned or bottled beer. So um, if you like it out of the can, you're going to love it on draft. So uh, I would certainly buy this again. And, uh, yeah, 7.8 for Collision Bend's Lake Erie Sunset, and that is the beer of the week. Collision Bend Brewing Company is at 1250 Old River Road, Cleveland, Ohio, right in the east bank of the flats between Lindy's Lake House and the Odeon. Uh, If you've ever been down in that area, it is fantastic. Got to get down there, especially given that it's August and it's, you know, I mean, it's a little warm and humid today, but for the most part, it's beautiful outside. Last Saturday night was insane down all everywhere downtown because you had the Billy, you had the um, Elton John concert at Progressive Field. You had show at Nautica. You had other stuff going on. It was just wow. I mean, one last thing woo. I want to one last thing I want to say about this beer is uh, in 2019, uh, it was named the U.S. Can of the Year by the Brewery Brewery Collectibles Club of America. So. This is, they're talking about the the can the, deli- the 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 design of the can and the artwork and everything. So I did not know there was a brewery collectibles commission <laughs> of America. Either, That's hey. wow. All right. Yeah. Hmm. Did you know that? Now you know. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Bill Nye. <laughs> That's right. So. Let's get to know a neighborhood. Anyway, uh, this is the All Things Cleveland podcast. We started off, obviously, with Cleveland beer. Um, but for the first time in our Better Know a Neighborhood series, we are not just going outside the Cleveland city limits tonight. We are going outside Cuyahoga County for the first time. This weekend is the, well, actually starting on Thursday night, is the NFL's Pro Football Hall of Fame game, followed by the Pro Football Hall of Fame induction ceremony this Saturday and Sunday, so I figured it would be appropriate to take a little drive down I-77, and we are going to talk about Canton, Ohio tonight. Mm. That is, of course, the home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, right off of I-77. But there is so much more that this city has to offer. Um, Once again, we'll start with the geography. Uh, Starts from 
about 55th Street Northeast in, in on the north side. That's uh, butts up against North Canton. I-77 and Whipple Avenue pretty much uh, form most of the western boundary. The southern boundary kind of jogs all over the place, but is mostly around Church Avenue. And in the east, it goes pretty much as far over as Trump Avenue. Trump. So, Canton is perhaps, again, in modern times, best known as one of the co-birthplaces of football, along with nearby Maslin. And the Pro Football Hall of Fame itself is sort of the crown jewel. I mean, we kind of have to talk about it first. Uh, I am ashamed. I am downright ashamed to say that I have never stepped inside the hallowed walls of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. See, you can, you're not even allowed to talk about football. As just, you are disqualified. You know, it's... Now, I will say it's probably been about 20 years for me since I've been there. Mm. So, okay, so you're cutting up. <laughs> so, basically, you're cutting. Oh, I'm not even going to go there. Um, 20 years is a long time, though. You know, the, you're talking about going back to 20 years. That was the uh, the Tim Couch, Kelly Holcomb era for the Browns. Uh, made the playoffs that year, of course. Um, at, the, at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, you have the Tom Benson Hall of Fame Stadium, uh, which was recently redone and is sparkling new and awesome. They actually hosted the USFL championship this year, uh, earlier this season, between Birmingham and Philadelphia. Located at 2121 George Hallis Drive, Northwest, Canton, Ohio, right off of I-77. And you could, I mean, you could just spend hours in there just admiring all of the exhibits, all of the bronze busts of all the amazing greats of the game, uh, admiring all of the Lombardi trophies, which unfortunately the Browns don't have any, but you know what? Just because they set up an arbitrary uh, year to, to cut off all the NFL championships and start calling them Super Bowls doesn't mean that ours don't count. So take that, all you teams that are talking about us like we don't have any Super Bowls. There. Besides the Pro Football Hall of Fame, there's still a heck of a lot that Canton has to offer. In fact, we had we had not one but two presidents that actually called Canton home. Uh, William McKinley was one. The McKinley Presidential Library and Museum is, is in Canton. It's actually just down the river, uh, only about a mile down from the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, on the west side of town. And this air, this place right here has a really iconic mausoleum uh, that faces into the actual library itself. Uh, 4.6 star rate on Google. It's at 800 McKinley Monument Drive Northwest in Canton, Ohio. And this is actually, if you're a history buff like I am, this is this is a really sweet place to go. Uh, in fact, the, the mausoleum is actually kind of designed like the Lincoln Memorial, except it doesn't have a statue of McKinley actually sitting uh, inside it. Fun fact, William McKinley, when he ran for president in 1896, he did not leave his front porch practically one time. Hmm. It was a very hands-off, very, the campaign came to him, not he went to it. It was honestly one of a kind um, and was probably the only one of its kind for 124 years until the COVID-19 outbreak forced most of the 2020 campaign to be behind closed doors as well. As you get more in toward downtown, um, there's one site I do want to point out that's literally right downtown, right off of uh, 2nd Street and Tuscarora Street, and that is the First Lady's National Historic Site. And for some reason... 
okay it's right next to the canton classic car museum which i actually clicked on instead but i'll talk about that next the first ladies national historic site is a it's an ornate house uh with columns it looks very presidentially and is a monument dedicated to all the first ladies that have served in the white house since the very beginning and this place is 4.3 star rated on Google and is at 205 Market Avenue in Canton. Another great spot if you're a history or a culture or any sort of a, uh, appreciator, appreciator of history. Uh, there are special exhibits to the first ladies of all eight of Ohio's uh, presidents in there from the very first one, William Henry Harrison, to uh, what I believe is the last one, uh, Warren G. Harding. And as I mentioned before, right next to that was the Canton Classic Cars Museum. This is a 4.6 star rated site. This is on 6th Avenue Southeast, uh, just south of downtown Canton, actually pretty much right in downtown Canton. This is one of the premier locations for classic cars that you'll see in Northeast Ohio. Uh, you've got cars from practically every era, from all the way back from the Model T all the way through um, the muscle car era of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then up to more more uh, modern cars as well. It says on, in most of the reviews that the cars are mostly, the biggest majority of them are from the 20s through the 40s, which I actually find kind of interesting because that's the Great Depression and the World War II era. When Because when you think about classic cars, the majority of them nowadays, you think of them from the 20s or before or from the 50s or later. So... Um, it almost covers a, an almost uncharted period of history there. So if you're a car buff, if you uh, appreciate classic uh, antiques and stuff like that, that's definitely a place to go see uh, right in downtown Canton. Right in downtown Canton, you have a bunch of great local businesses. Bender's Tavern is really highly rated. Mugs, Wigs, Coffee, and Tea is a great coffee shop that's right on Route 43. Uh, the Muscalunge Brewing Company is just off of 5th Street Northwest. That's a, that's a local microbrewery that's a very highly rated. And then as you make your way back out to the north, actually on the far north end of town, there's uh, one place I do want to point out, and that is the Gervasi Vineyard. This is the biggest vineyard in Stark County and one of the largest in Northeast Ohio. Gervasi Vineyard is 4.6 star rated on Google. It's at 1755th Street Northeast, right on the border with North Canton. There are rows and rows of grapes, and there's actually a really nice lake that uh, abuts the the major um, the main building there, which actually has a, has a restaurant and has a bunch of uh, um, winemaking assorted uh, exhibits to see. So. That's actually something to really check out. So, you know, we're kind of hitting a, a bunch of different things here. You know, you've, you've got sports, you've got high culture, you've got history, you've, you've got um, great automobiles. You, there's, there's a lot of stuff to do in Canton. Uh, you know, for some reason, Canton sort of gets a bad rap. It, it's actually, I saw a YouTube video, it was actually rated as one of the um, most difficult cities in Ohio in terms of crime. Um, I don't know if that stems from specific neighborhoods in the area. Certainly none of the places I described would would, um, um, would be like that. So it, it's a place where you could spend – you could conceivably spend multiple days down in Canton. You really could uh, with all the, the things that are there to do, uh, not just 
you know, I didn't even mention any of the nice natural park areas. Uh, Sippo Lake, which is on the southwest side of town, is a really nice natural area. You've got parklands and trails that stretch for uh, almost six miles, actually, going all the way around it. Um, there's some good fishing there as well. There's also some good fishing at Myers Lake, which is a little bit closer to downtown, uh, which is on the near northwest side of the city. And then also along the Tuscaroras River, running almost all the way from downtown near uh, where it insects, intersects U.S. Route 30 and then going up toward all the way into North Canton, there's also more natural areas uh, and parkland that you can kind of just hang out with. It's a really nice metro park. It, that actually might be the largest continuous metro park in Stark County. I don't know that for a fact, but it goes for, again, a, a pretty long distance, four, five, six miles there. So... There is a lot to do here, but again, the Pro Football Hall of Fame is the crown jewel, and that's where most of the activity is going to be this coming week. The city population of Canton swells by about 200 to 300% every year during the Hall of Fame week. Uh, it, really is, uh, it really is the bread and butter as far as uh, tourist season is for them. So that is Canton. And I don't even know if you can really call it a neighborhood or a suburb, but that is it. And wham with the right hand. Very nice. Very nice. Another one in the books. Uh, okay. So uh, if I seem distracted right now, it's because there has just been an absolute avalanche of information that has come out and come down since this afternoon. I think you guys are all know what I'm talking about, and I will say this. Uh, we didn't record last night because uh, something came up uh, personally, and uh, we decided that uh, not to record and push it back a day, so we we're recording today. And it turns out that actually was a blessing in disguise because— Yeah, what a great decision that turned out to be. <laughs> if we recorded last night, we would have we still been like, okay, like we, we don't know what's happening, blah, blah, blah. We would have missed a big piece of news that came down this week, specifically today— this afternoon, and that is living <clears throat> off the land, breaking news. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so since we last recorded, Judge Sue L. Robinson came down with her ruling, six-game suspension for Deshaun Watson. She put out a report. I'm really not going to get into the minutia of the report because we've talked about what Deshaun Watson's accused of and all that sort of stuff. We've talked about that ad nauseum. I want to talk about specifically the relationship between the NFL, the NFLPA, this new process that is that has been put in place to uh kind of uh, judge these potential personal conduct violations. So, since we recorded last, we had the Suell Robinson uh report and her decision, 6 games, and the NFL had until tomorrow morning thursday to appeal or not to appeal that decision well it came down at about five o'clock today roughly this afternoon maybe maybe just before that uh the nfl has decided to appeal judge sue robinson's uh, six game ruling six games no fine uh the nfl does not think that that is enough so they are appealing, and once again, Roger Goodell becomes judge, jury, and executioner for the NFL. So basically the NFL's response to Judge Sue Robinson's um, 
decision was six. Pretty much. Uh, basically, they said, thanks. Thanks for what you did. Uh, we don't agree with the six games. We'll take it from here. Now, my question is, this is a disaster of a process. And again, I'm not talking about what Deshaun Watson's accused of. This could have been, you know, uh, this could have been some any other case. I'm not talking about the actual specific case. I'm talking about the process. The reason why Judge Sue L. Robinson was put in place was to make it so that the NFL didn't have carte blanche to uh, adjudicate any of these cases so they saw fit. Because what has happened in years previous and in cases previous is the NFL has generally effed up every single situation uh, that you can think of when it comes to uh, uh, discipline for violations of the personal conduct policy. And we'll go right to the first one, the one that has created this entire, excuse my language, shitstorm, and that is the Baltimore Ravens and the Ray Rice scenario. When he originally got two games uh, of a suspension, and then the video of him knocking out his fiance came out in the elevator, and then he didn't play again. And Roger Goodell almost lost his job because of it. I mean, you just and then you just go down the line. You talk about, uh, you know, you talk about Ezekiel Elliott when he was suspended. The NFL put in a baseline suspension of six games for any violation of the personal conduct policy. So that's what Sue Robinson ruled. She ruled that because of precedent. And the baseline that has been uh, that has been implemented by the NFL, she saw fit to go no longer than six games as a suspension for Deshaun Watson. And she, what she basically did was she she literally in the report called the NFL a front. What was it? What did she say? Front facing uh, organization. But something basically what basically essentially what she said was uh, they don't they basically play to the optics of the situation. If there's a giant public outcry, they play to the public outcry of situations. If there's a giant public outcry that they take it more seriously, basically saying that they don't really care about the seriousness of what the player is alleged. They care about what the public thinks of it. So if they determine that the public really doesn't care about what's going on, then they don't care. They just care about optics. They care about PR. Don't think for a second that the NFL gives a damn about uh, the women in this case. They don't care. They care about what the public thinks of them. So that's why they put out that they want Deshaun Watson suspended for a year. They want him suspended indefinitely. You know, blah, 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 blah. Now, this thing is about to get really, really muddy, really spicy, and it's about to be a shit show. Because if the NFL goes through with this and they try to suspend Deshaun Watson for a full season, this is going to federal court. The NFLPA has already stated that if the NFL dares to try and suspend him for a year or indefinitely, minimum of a year, that they're going to end up in federal court. And you remember the last time that the NFL and the NFLPA ended up in federal court was Deflategate, was Tom Brady. The NFLPA uh, got an injunction. 
So Tom Brady played an entire season before that case wrapped up. Eventually, the NFL won the case, and uh, his suspension was upheld. And he served his four-game suspension, but he served it a season later. Tom Brady played an entire season before he was forced to serve a suspension for what he was accused of doing in Deflategate. Now, I know that that's different from what we're talking about with Deshaun. Tom Brady's was more of an integrity of the game sort of situation. Basically, the NFL thought he cheated by deflating footballs uh, to whatever, make it easier for him to throw, catch, blah, 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 blah. Deshaun Watson, obviously, this is an off-the-field, this is a more serious matter involving other people. But it remains the same. If this goes all the way through the appeal and to federal court, I'm telling you right now, Deshaun Watson's playing week one. Yeah. And he will play until that federal court case is resolved. And if you know anything about federal court cases, they don't wrap up quickly. No. There's an entirely realistic possibility that Deshaun Watson plays, assuming he's healthy, every game this season. If it ends up in federal court, yeah, there yeah. is a very good possibility of that. Because right. when you think about because it— Because what happens is the NFL could say—the NFL could come out and say, uh, by like next week, say— Deshaun Watson, you're out for a year. You're gone. And the NFLPA will say, no. Whoa! <laughs> All right, Dwayne. <laughs> I was going to say not so, I was going to go uh, go Lee Corso and go not so fast, my friend. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, the NFLPA is 100% going to go and file a court case with a federal uh, court. And they will get a restraining order and a temporary stay of the suspension. And Deshaun Watson will play. He will. So for me, I think that above any other time in this whole process, the NFL filing an appeal leads me to believe that we're a settlement between the NFL and the NFLPA is the most likely outcome where this doesn't get incredibly messy. Now, what does that mean? Yeah. There's there's a lot of scenarios that are at play. Obviously, that becomes a negotiating, you know, they go to a negotiating uh, table. And does this mean the, the amount of games that Deshaun Watson suspended stays the same, but he's he's slapped with a giant fine? Does that mean that... I think most parties would be very happy if that was the outcome. <sighs> yeah, I mean... Sean Watson's going to be making millions and millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. Yeah, well, so, so what does so, it matter to him? So, yeah, so essentially what I think that would be would be the NFL would fine him around $10 million. And the reason why that number is significant, that's the amount of money he made last year sitting on the bench with Houston. Mm-hmm. He made $10 million as his salary last year. And I think what the NFL would say, and again, the NFL cares about optics. They don't give a damn about, you know, anything else. What the NFL can then say is, since Deshaun Watson did not play last year, 
That's a fact. He didn't play. Now, the reasons why, it's not because he was suspended or anything. But if the NFL finds him $10 million, they can essentially say that he was suspended without pay last year plus six games this year, and they could say that he essentially has a 23-game suspension without pay. Hmm. Now, I don't think that's very likely because I think the NFL, now that they appealed the six-game suspension, I don't think that they're going to keep the number of games the same, six. I think they're looking for a bit of an extension on the suspension plus a fine. You know, eight, 10, 12 games plus a fine. Because that way, the NFL, you know, the, 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 the Players Association saves face by, you know, they didn't get their guy suspended for a whole year. The NFL can say, look, we have an impartial judge, Sue L. Robinson, appointed by us in the PA, and we didn't think that her ruling was harsh enough. We bumped it up. See, we care, blah, 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 blah. Here's my problem with that. Okay. Like you said, Sue Robinson was appointed by both sides to be an independent arbiter in situations like this. Right. And in her ruling, she made the case that Watson engaged in a pattern of behavior that was egregious, uh, but saying it was nonviolent sexual conduct. But she also said that Watson showed no remorse for his conduct and continues to refute all charges against him, also saying it is difficult to give weight to a complete denial when weighed against the credible testimony of investigators who interviewed the therapists and other third parties. Those words are pretty stinging, and yet she only gave a six-game suspension, which, if you think about it, is equal to what Dallas running back Ezekiel Elliott got in, in a similar situation and also what Miles Garrett got for you know taking his helmet off and clubbing Mason Rudolph over the head in, a, in an on-field fight. Yeah. So, I mean, how does this situation compare to those? I mean, she said it was pretty equitable. Obviously, the NFL doesn't agree. But here's the thing. Well, so, okay. The NFL agreed to this process, as did the NFLPA. Yes. And they have now totally reneged. The NFLPA, I mean, really, if this doesn't come to some sort of a settlement, the— the NFLPA does need to fight this out in federal court because the worst thing is not people who are just outright your enemy, but are people who like pretend to work with you and then will basically stab you in the back, which is what the NFL is doing here. Well, they're really not because this is all part of the policy. The NFL appealing, this is all part of the policy. This was collectively bargained. The PA agreed that to give NFL both both sides have appeal power. The NFLPA said they weren't going to appeal the six game ruling, which smart because six games. The NFL said no, 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 we're appealing it. They have that right in the in the in the in the CBA. That was bargained. The NFL's not going behind the PA's back on this. I can see where that was well intentioned, but obviously that just <laughs> in well, practice isn't isn't uh, isn't well, working out the best. Again, the NFLPA agreed to it. So that this is where the NFL screwed up. They to me, they screwed up the timeline of what happens. Ideally, Sue L. Robinson should have been the last line of adjudication. Right. The NFL should have been able the NFL should have uh given the initial suspension. And then if the NFL PA didn't like it, they could appeal to Judge Sue Robinson, and then whatever Judge Sue Robinson says is final. That's the way it yeah, should have gone. that's the way it should go. 
this is stupid the way they did it. And I blame the Players Association. They agreed to this. Yeah. They absolutely 100% agreed to this. And obviously, the way that this case is, is going, the next CBA negotiation, this is going to be a large point of contention. Maybe what the NFLPA thought was that in a, if a situation like this were to occur where the arbiter would give a ruling and the other side wouldn't like it, that they would immediately be the subject of public scrutiny. And it seems like that's what's happening now. So maybe the NFLPA is using is been planning on using public sentiment as another card yet in their deck or their arsenal. Well, I mean, public sentiment outside of Cleveland is that they want the NFL to levy a harsher sentence. I mean, that's just 100% the facts. 100%. So... I might have said that before all the facts actually came out over the last few months. I'm not quite so convinced of that now. But be that as it may, I mean, I it's, don't think we have any opinion polls on the subject. It's so. it's it's that's what's going on. So I I'm not going to say for certain because this is the first time that this process has played out. And again, I don't know that we really know the aim of the NFL because I'm fully on board with thinking that the NFL just wants to avoid a PR firestorm. And the best way that they do that is to levy a heavier sentence. So, but I will go back to if they can't find common ground and settle on something and the NFL ends up levying the one-year suspension, this is going to federal court, and I'm telling you, Deshaun Watson's going to be on the field in Carolina week one. So all you people out there, and it's a lot of Houston Texans fans and it's a lot of AFC North fans that are not in Cleveland that are saying that they want the NFL to drop the hammer on Deshaun Watson. Be careful what you wish for, because if that happens, the NFLPA has already said they will file a federal lawsuit against the NFL. They will get an injunction, and he will be on the field until that this case wraps up. Which probably won't be until next offseason, because yeah. frankly, we're only six months away from the Super Bowl, Yeah, pretty much. Could you imagine, and obviously I would love to imagine this because this would mean the Browns. Yep. Could you imagine if the NFLPA files for an injunction, is granted the injunction, Deshaun Watson plays the entire season, and the Browns are playing in the Super Bowl? Yes. Yes. I mean, you want to. Yes. I mean, you want to talk yes. about you want, and and again, we're not. I'm I'm no longer talking about the facts of this case because, quite frankly, we've talked about it all day or we've talked about it for months. What I'm talking about now, and let's also point out the fact that Deshaun Watson has settled 23 of the 24 civil cases there against him, and he was never uh, indicted uh, criminally. So I'm talking about the process between the NFLPA and the NFL because this is huge. Not only for this case, but this will be setting a precedent moving forward 
for future cases because you know this is going to happen again because uh, whether people want to like it or not, Deshaun Watson is not the only quote-unquote bad guy out there. And I love how all these all these fans of different teams want to come after Browns fans as if the as if Browns fans made this trade for Deshaun Watson and uh you know their team has never been or any of their players have never been accused or convicted of doing anything bad. I'm looking at you Raven fan. I mean for God's sakes, you you have a statue of Ray Lewis outside of your damn stadium. Alleged or not, that guy was involved in a murder. Whether he did it or not, he's involved. Ray Rice almost killed his fiance in an elevator. Now that one, I will sort of give the Ravens the benefit of the doubt because he never played another down for the Ravens again after that happened. But still, there are bad people on every team. The Cincinnati Bengals, Joe Mixon, when he was in college at Oklahoma, knocked some girl out at like 3 in the morning at some fast food place after a night out at the bars. Did the Bengals still draft him in the first or second round? Did the Bengals deal with Vontez Perfect and Adam Pac-Man Jones and all the guys? The list goes on and on. And don't you dare make me bring up Steeler fan Ben Roethlisberger, who you guys idolized and your fans were crying this past January when he played his last game in in uh, in Pittsburgh and retired. Lest we not go back and and rehash uh, his allegations. Oh, it was only one or two. Yeah, well, he was accused of raping somebody. Oh, the charges were dropped. No, they weren't. He settled. So this goes on and on. This is all over the NFL. Everybody needs to get off their high horse. The Cleveland Browns fans, who we are we are two of, we didn't trade for Deshaun Watson. Are we excited about his talent and what he could do on the football field? Hell yeah, of course. Does that mean we're not sensitive to what he was accused of? No, that doesn't mean that. Like people, people act like Browns fans are just like, oh yeah, hey Deshaun Watson, we don't care. Do you understand how conflicted I am? I haven't had to have, I haven't gotten to have any fun about this upcoming season because this is what we're having to deal with. There has been article after article in the PD, Cleveland.com, and in all sorts of local media talking about how Browns fans are. I mean, we can discuss how, how legitimate this is, but you're talking about friends, families, diehard fans, casual fans, what have you, being totally divided over this issue and have been ever since Deshaun Watson joined the team. In fact, there are some people on the other side who you know are still feeling a certain way about the Kareem Hunt signing. You know, it even goes back as far yeah. as that. Now, you could you could take the other side and say that the Browns are effectively granting re- a shot at redemption for some of these guys, some of these guys who have been through the ringer, who have done and wrong, other teams too, have like the back. other teams that I that I mentioned. I mean, you, you, yeah, I mean, there's not this is not without precedent. I mean, Michael Vick went to jail for two years yeah. on federal dogfighting charges. Yeah. And he came back and was a starting QB and again in the league afterwards on yeah. Philadelphia. Like, this this stuff happens, guys. You know, don't, 
I mean, yeah, the Ray Lewis situation, not Ray Lewis, the, the Ray Rice situation was, was a one time and you're done for obvious reasons. But there are many instances of players doing what, I mean, if you want to go to other sports, I mean, let's talk about Kobe Bryant. I mean, this that was another. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this isn't just football. This is all this is all sports, and this and this happens in entertainment too. Like this happens all over the place. Right. For the most part, celebrities and people of high prominence are not good people. Now, this isn't me. This isn't me uh, trying to minimize Deshaun Watson. What I'm trying to do, what we're trying to talk about here is the process of how they're coming to this, um, how it's coming to a head with the NFLPA and the NFL and all that. I just, I'm, I'm just telling the NFL right now, and of course, you know, Roger Goodell listens to this podcast every week. You know, he's <laughs> listening to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Be careful what you wish for. Because I'm, I guarantee if the NFL says he's suspended for a year, he's playing week one. It's going to be a hot September afternoon in Charlotte. So what I think the NFL has to, what the NFL has to, um, has to try here is essentially thread the needle to what get as much punishment as they see fit without the NFLPA filing a lawsuit, being like, okay, what can the NFL get away with? punishing Deshaun Watson without the NFLPA saying, that's ridiculous, we're going to court, we'll see you in court. That's where I think the settlement talks come in. So for you, six games, the NFL says not enough. What type of suspension, discipline, fine, whatever, do you think that the NFL can say, here's what we're willing to, here's our best offer, this is what we think he should do, without the NFLPA saying, we'll see you in court. Well, that is an interesting question. Um, so you had said because I think right that I, I think that's what this comes down to. The NFL is trying. The NFL. Oh, you're right. That from a P, and again, this is an optics and PR move. The NFL is trying to show that they're quote unquote taking this seriously and want to make an example quote unquote of Deshaun Watson. So what can they come up with to where they're not going to drag themselves into trouble? Because if this goes to a federal lawsuit. You know the NFLPA is going to be is going to they're going to try and subpoena Jerry Jones they're going to try and subpoena Robert Kraft they're going to try and subpoena Daniel Snyder they're going to try and subpoena oh hell yes all of these owners hell yes. that have been accused of doing shady type stuff similar to Deshaun Watson like Dan Snyder's being accused of stuff that would get him that should get him removed as owner of his franchise. That doesn't happen. That's only happened like one other time in the NFL, and it happened a handful of years ago with Jerry Richardson when he uh, made some racist comments about his players, and he was ousted as the owner of the Carolina Panthers. That another another one was was uh, uh, who Donald was Sterling. Donald Sterling, of the Los Angeles Clippers. Same thing with uh, with the uh, with the the his uh, racist recording of him talking about his players. The Daniel Snyder thing is a toxic in, uh, cultural environment in his organization of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. Like, how is that any different than the Sean Watson situation? In fact, that is way worse because that right. permeates an entire organization. Right. One of your, you know, 32 franchises. Robert Kraft. 
We all remember what he was accused of. Mm-hmm. No files charged. He never got punished for anything. Jerry Jones, I bet you a lot of people listening to this podcast have no idea what I'm talking about with Jerry Jones. This offseason, he was accused in a voyeurism scandal uh, within the Dallas Cowboys organization. Didn't talk about that. That was swept under the rug. And there's others, too. There's others that I'm not talking, that that I, I just can't think off the top of my head. This is what the NFL has to avoid because the NFLPA, if 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 they if if the NFL suspends Deshaun Watson for a year or a year or an indefinite suspension minimum of a year, NFLPA is going to go at the NFL's throat over this. And it's at that point that everybody is going to realize how inherently racist this whole thing is because you just pointed out all these guys, all these rich yeah. white dudes who. You know, own have all this money and are owning these franchises and are doing terrible things. And in Daniel Snyder's case, he also has a stadium that's literally falling down to the point where fans are falling over railings, uh, just trying to give somebody a high five as they leave the field. I mean, it's just just pathetic. Uh, but quite frankly, it's just the fact that they're putting Watson through this incredible ringer. I find it very, very hard to believe. And I'm just going to throw some random names out here that if Derek Carr or uh, Jimmy Garoppolo or somebody like that was Justin Herbert was getting accused of this kind of thing. I mean, they're not an owner. Maybe they'd have an easier time getting it swept away. But, but quite frankly, I find it hard to believe that they would be getting this far down the rabbit hole, you know, with this whole situation. It just doesn't make sense. I, and again, the Texans have been accused of basically being racist on this whole subject from the very beginning. It just, it all, it all adds up to me. The Texans will get dragged into this as well because they out of the blue settled with 30 potential accusers of Deshaun Watson and are trying to, trying to sweep uh, their involvement in this whole thing under the rug. Of course they are. That will get brought up in discovery in the case, in the federal case if this happens. I mean, they want to be Mickey Mouse. They're like, that's not our player anymore. That, we're done. So, back to my original question before I went off on this tirade. Um, yeah. Where's your kind of, for lack of a better phrase, sweet spot as far as what the NFL appeal and subsequent updated discipline is going to be for Deshaun where – they can kind of get away with not having to deal with like a federal lawsuit with the NFLPA. So here's where I think the end zones are for the two sides. I think for the NFLPA, anything over eight games and like a fairly large suspension, or not suspension, fine. a fairly large fine, like a couple mil, I, I think anything above that is probably unacceptable for them. And for the NFL, I feel like. Deshaun Watson being on the field when the Browns played at Houston in Week 12 is probably unacceptable. So they're probably thinking at least 12 games, whereas the NFLPA would be very unhappy with anything over eight. Yeah, and I think so, yeah, bridging that gap is going to be the really difficult part. It's interesting you bring up the the, the Houston game because uh, Charles Robinson of uh, Yahoo Sports, senior NFL writer. Uh, he basically agreed with an Albert Breer take from earlier today after the NFL appealed. He said that he's heard from sources that the NFL and Roger Goodell specifically do not want Watson playing in the Houston game in Week 12, 
which lines up with the league previously circling a 12-game suspension in settlement talks. Now, that's to me, that seems kind of conspiracy theorist. That begs the question, why would they care? Right. So the only, the only uh, parallel that I could draw with that would be when LeBron came back in 2010, the, the atmosphere at that arena in Cleveland. Ooh, boy. I think that the NFL and Roger Goodell might think that it's going to be even worse than that because I will say, while that arena was incredibly loud, there was no foul play at at Quicken Loans Arena that night. There was nobody running onto the field trying to do anything to LeBron. There was no, you know, people didn't throw anything or court, not field. No, nah, people were people I didn't mean, throw anything on the court. They handled their business. Yeah, in true Cleveland fan fashion, we were pretty classy. Now I say that. When we threw bottles on the field Since against Bottlegate, I mean that was yeah. 21 years ago, but yeah. still. So, but so, so, the NFL obviously wants to avoid an ugly situation because there's no doubt that Deshaun Watson going back to Houston would certainly be combustible. But I think that I, I think that's, I think that's a little conspiracy theorish, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if I buy that. It's one guy out of 53, and the guy wouldn't have not played for almost two years. That's, so you think I mean, so you think anything over eight games and a hefty fine, the NFLPA is like, not. Nah, we'll see in court. Yeah, I think so. <sighs> Boy, I think we're going to see it. I, if that's the case, we're going to see him in court then. Yeah, that, that's where I think this is headed. Because I think that the NFL is going to go to that 12 games plus fine because that is the benchmark that they set in settlement talks. So I think the NFL is going to go back to that. I think the NFL is going to say we're going to double the amount of games that Sue Robinson gave him, and we want a fine tacked on to that. Because remember, Sue Robinson gave him six games with no fine. I hope with the, you know the NFL, they might be thinking twelve games just on the their what might be in their thought processes if if it's a twelve game suspension, the Browns will be like three and nine or four and eight by the time we get to that point, and yeah. the Watson will be like, "Yeah, we'll see you in two thousand twenty three." The Browns won't even bring him yeah, up cause, to play, cause, yeah. and it'll effectively become a year. You know? Oh, I think he'll play. I think he'll play because I don't think the Browns want. I don't think the Browns want to be going into twenty twenty three where he hasn't played a football game in two seasons. Even if even if we're three and nine, he's playing those five games. I think. Mm. Because not only not only would you want him to knock the rust off, but you also want to give the fans a glimpse of what's going to come the next season. Like, if he comes back, and let's say the Browns run the table the rest of those five games. Yeah, finish like 8-9 and nine or something They're like immediately that. going to be Super Bowl contenders in 2023. Yeah, you'll have a lot of considerable buzz behind the team, assuming he doesn't get hurt in those yeah, five games. Right, yeah, right, right, right. That's yeah. the obvious qualify. That was what I was thinking of. Like, why would you risk him in an injury? But but knocking the rust off would probably be more important, honestly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with that that uh, benchmark settlement uh, proposal from the NFL of 12 games and an 8 to $10 million fine. I think the And I think the NFLPA rebuffs that. And I think he gets suspended for 10 games with a substantial fine. 
I think mm-hmm. both both sides at that point are going to grit their teeth and say, "Okay, let's just get this over with." Hmm. So, I think that's where we're headed. I don't think he's going to get suspended for a year because, like we said, like we said ad nauseum this episode, uh, it's going to federal court if that happens, and it's going to get messy. And I don't think the NFL wants that. So in the event that that is what happens, so in in my scenario where it ends up being, let's just say that the NFL agrees to eight games. I don't think they will, but if they do, Deshaun Watson's first game will be in Miami on November 13th. In the event that it ends up being 10, then Watson's first game will be home against Tampa Bay on November 27th. Talk about a must-see game that one if it turns out to be that his second game back oddly enough would be in Houston against the Texans so again 12 games would push him back to at Cincinnati on December 11th oh boy (laughs) that's what I say to that I hope that the mic picked that up (laughs) that was for you Roger Goodell in the NFL oh gosh Oh boy! <laughs> oh my God, Champ! What the hell was that? <laughs> my goodness gracious! Oh, he's looking at me right now. Right now, he's like, "What did you do?" Oh boy! <laughs> oh man! All right, so uh, we will look to see what the next steps are. Um, if there is to be a settlement, it obviously is going to happen before the beginning of the regular season. Um, so if the NFLPA and the NFL strike a settlement deal on discipline, it will be before week one. In that case, Deshaun Watson will not be on the field for week one. But if there's a federal lawsuit, he's playing week one. I can guarantee it. I'm guessing that Vegas has taken the Browns' wins over under off the board. Oh, I'm sure. Today, based on this news. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, listen, I like Jacoby Brissett. I don't like Jacoby Brissett as my quarterback for an entire season. I'm sorry, I don't. I think we're headed towards 6-11 and 11, if that's the case. I was thinking 5-12, and 12, so we're pretty much on the same wavelength there. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just think you're going to waste a year of – now, if he does end up getting suspended for the season somehow and, you know, they don't, you know, whatever, there's no injunction and there's no blah, 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 blah. Do the Browns make a trade for Jimmy Garoppolo? No. No? No. I, Jimmy Garoppolo is good, but is he that much better than Jacoby Brissett? Eh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I think he is. Um, Problem is, he get, I mean, maybe he is just strictly on talent, but the guy gets hurt a lot. Very true. That's 100%. <laughs> I mean, he literally just started throwing football after his offseason shoulder surgery. Um, A healthy Jimmy Garoppolo? With this roster, I think gets you to the playoffs. But knowing the Browns, they'll trade for him and he'll get hurt in week two and be out for like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Like he'll he'll yeah, whatever. So yeah. Right. But anyway. Okay, so uh we will see where this goes. Uh we will talk about it obviously again next week. It's you know, Browns are in preseason mode and our franchise quarterback is embroiled in all this. And I'm not letting him off the hook. This is this is his doing. I mean, if he d- d- 
you know, be a weirdo in those massage rooms, none of this would have happened. But I got to tell you, Dan, you hit the nail on the head on one topic earlier because August is usually Kool-Aid season. This is no ordinary Kool-Aid season. You were saying you you couldn't possibly you couldn't even be happy about no. what the Browns have done or happy for the season. Yeah, it's it's really hard to be right now. Listen, There's just so much uncertainty. I, I got to get our fantasy football league up and running again, and I I have had no interest in even thinking about it. <laughs> football is so distant in my mind right now. Usually, I'd be like. You know, getting up. We're Browns fans. You drink the Kool-Aid. We think our team's going to go to the Super Bowl every year until we see them play in week one and lose. And by the way, assuming Deshaun Watson does not play in week one, we're losing to Baker Mayfield. I think we're losing that game no matter who's on the field, but that's just me having a phobia of week one. But, yeah. Deshaun Watson's on the field. I don't think so. But, anyway. Be that as it may. Yeah. So we'll see what happens uh, in the next week uh, until our next episode. Um, you know, we could we could come on the air next week for our podcast, and there could be a settlement on discipline, and we're essentially moving on. So we'll see. We'll see. So Praise uh, the Lord if that happens. We yeah. would welcome that so much. Absolutely. Sorry. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. <laughs> Dan nearly fumbled. Uh, Columbus Crew are up one nothing. Oh, uh, hey, on CF Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let's uh, before we get on out of here, let's do the week that was with the Ooh. Cleveland Guardians. Okay, so the Guardians, the Gardos, over the last ten day period, and we said that this was a real nasty stretch for the Guardians. They had to go play four at Fenway Park. They had to play three in St. Petersburg against the Rays, and then they had three against the Arizona Diamondbacks, who admittedly, I mean, not as strong on paper as the other two teams, but not pushovers either. And the Guardians came out looking pretty good. I was particularly impressed by the fact that they won two out of three against the Rays in St. Petersburg. Yes, very impressive. And shout-out to our friend Matt Steigerwald, whose birthday was Sunday. And his... Four-month-old son. I don't have access to the soundboard right now. It was his four-month-old son Leo's first baseball game ever. Oh, they took him to the to the. They took him to Tropicana Field for the game. Nice. And the Guardians came away with a five-three victory on Sunday. So that nice. that it was absolutely Leo the excellent. good luck charm man. Very nice. Uh, so going back to last week, I just want to run through the results. Uh, we'll go Wednesday because today's Wednesday. Right. Uh, Guardians lost to the Tigers eight to two. That was the last game of a four-game stretch. That was the previous week. Whoops! No, that was actually the previous month. All right. So last Wednesday, July twenty seventh, the Guardians uh, won the rubber match against the. Oh no, that's not right either because we played four games in Boston. Third game of the series against the Red Sox, seven to six. The Guardians won, uh, and the last game of the series the next day on Thursday we lost four to two. How come they couldn't have had an off day on Thursday? Uh, I don't know. Darn it! Uh, But then the aforementioned uh, series with the Rays, four one, Guardians six four Rays, and then five to three Guardians. 
And then as we get into August, the the Guardians took two out of three at home against the pesky Diamondbacks. Uh, they won in 11 innings on Monday, 6-5, to five, on a Ahmed Rosario uh, base knock in the 11th inning, bottom of the 11th. <laughs> Diamondbacks came up and even the series 6-3 to three yesterday. And then on a getaway day game today, the Guardians – uh, one seven to four to take the series. So the Guardians remain one game out of first place in the AL Central. The Minnesota Twins are fifty five and forty nine. The Guardians stand at fifty four and fifty. So, uh, by the way, Ahmed Rosario hit an absolute bomb today. Four hundred fifty feet to dead center. An absolute hit. That might be the hardest ball hit that he's ever hit in his career. I mean, that was a Tommy bomb to dead center. 450 to dead center. That's got to be almost a Heritage Park, or yeah. maybe. I mean, he hit gosh. It, he hit it uh, just over. That's over the picnic pavilion. It was the. Uh, it was. It was a little bit left of center. It was just over the the last uh, edge, edge of the, wall, of the actually, big wall, which is actually the deepest part of the park, right yeah. there. Hmm. Wow. So this series coming up against. Houston, these next four games, I said this was the end of that, you know, two-week stretch of real difficulty for the Guardians, and it's the hardest part of it. Yep. I said that the Guardians were still at least like two or three over 500. I mean, they, if they lose three or four, they'd still be two over. Yep. Um, then they, they were still going to be in this thing probably all the way. And I'll tell you what, they've really got an opportunity here. They were to beat Houston in this series? Oh, man. They could really be riding momentum big time going into a whole bunch of division games coming up. Who does – let me see here. Who does Minnesota play this weekend? Uh, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, give me a second here. We're starting to look head-to-head at what the other teams are doing. So the twins, the twins have the Blue Jays at home this weekend, four games set. The Blue Jays have been pretty solid of, of, for most of the last month. Yeah. That's not going to be so easy for them. So we'll see. I mean, if if the if the Guardians surprise us this weekend and say take three or four from, uh, and then oh by the, the way, Astros, the Twins have got to go play the Dodgers after that. So there's a, a there's a realistic possibility if the Guardians can hold their ground against the Astros this weekend that by our next episode the Cleveland Guardians could be in first place. Very possible. Your first place, Cleveland Guardians. <sighs> That would um, sound really, really nice. Also, before before we end this episode, I would be remiss if I did not uh, mention uh, the passing of probably the greatest baseball announcer of all time last night. Uh, Vin Scully passed away last night at age of 94. It's a really tough week for sports deaths. Uh, and Vin Scully, of course, had a couple of really iconic calls. One was in Vin Scully announced baseball for 67 years. That is crazy. 67. You think about it. The Dodgers moved out from Brooklyn to Los Angeles in 1958. Yep. This guy was announcing baseball before 1958. Yep. That's yeah. crazy. He got his first uh he got his first uh broadcasting gig, I believe, when he was twenty one or twenty two years old. 22, I believe, actually, because I think he retired when he was 89. 89 he retired from the Dodgers. Um, he was just the best. You know, we, we, we are very lucky in this city to have Tom Hamilton uh, announce our games. And, you know, hopefully 
we get a lot more years with Tom Hamilton uh, saying a swing and a drive on the corner of Carnegie and Ontario. But there was nobody like Vince Scully, man. I mean, the the ability – I'll say this. they You know, last night and on social media – you know, people posted a bunch of his iconic calls. You know, he called he called uh, you know the Buckner play in the '86 World Series. He was on that call because uh, he did a bunch of national stuff too. For, yeah, uh, come the playoffs, he, he did a lot of national games. And then he did uh, the iconic um, Kirk Gibson home run call in Game One of the World Series against the Oakland Athletics. I don't believe what I just. Well, that saw. wasn't him. That wasn't him. But uh, he was on the call for that, and. Uh, I think the greatest thing about Vince Scully, other than the fact that he was an incredible storyteller, and people don't know this about me, when when I was growing up and when I originally went to college, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a play-by-play uh, voice for baseball, football, basketball. It didn't matter to me the sport. I wanted to go into sports broadcasting. And Vince Scully was one of the guys that, I paid attention to when that was still something that I wanted to do. His ability to understand the moment and let a situation breathe without him talking all over it and allow the listener to put themselves in the stadium was unrivaled. The example is the Kirk Gibson home run in Game Game 1 of the World Series in 1986. He went a minute and eight seconds in between words on that call. When he said, she's gone, to when he spoke again, he just let breathe and you just heard the crowd and the gravity of the moment. And it was absolutely incredible. And there's so many more iconic moments with Vince Scully that I could get into. You know, obviously we talk about the Buckner call and we talk about all these other moments that that he called. His ability to to not only, like I just said, just let a moment breathe and just let the fans just, you know, visually put themselves in that situation without over-talking the moment and the crowd and the gravity. He also had an opportunity. an incredible ability to tell a story during a game. And it was absolutely incredible. It, it, it felt like you were in the box with him, just talking baseball and just watching the game with him. And it was so incredible. And I credit Tom Hamilton has that same knack and ability to let a moment breathe and just understand when the listener doesn't need to hear him talk necessarily. They just need to listen to what's going on so that the person can put themselves there in their mind. And it's it's something that you can't teach. It's something that he had. He had an uncanny ability to understand what the listener needed to hear, and he knew he had the... Uh, he was humble enough to know that in the biggest moments, that wasn't necessarily his voice that the fan listening to the radio call needed to hear. 
and I think he's he's the greatest of all time. That's really opinion. a heck of a quality because as we've seen well in this episode and pretty much in a lot of walks of life, people have egos. Absolutely. And they think they're important. Absolutely. But sometimes the moment's not about you. He was one of the egoless um you know, men in baseball. And uh it's sad. You know, he lived a great life. He lived a long life. 94 years old is a long-ass life. But it sucks that, you know, he hasn't called games in a handful of years now, obviously. But to know that Vince Scully's not around anymore, it's a sad day, man. He was the GOAT. He was the best. He was the greatest. So just wanted to kind of do that tribute to Vince Scully. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't know that about myself, that, you know, that's something that I wanted to do with my life at one point in time. And Vince Scully was one of the big reasons why, um, you know, he was an idol for me as far as broadcasting. And, and I'll, I'll say this, you know, I'm going to bring this back to Cleveland. We have been spoiled in this city with sports broadcasters, play-by-play broadcasters. And when you talk about Joe Tate with the Cavs, um, you know, RIP Joe, RIP Fred McLeod with the Cavaliers on the TV side. Uh, you know, he he hasn't done play-by-play in a while, but Bruce Drennan was also an Indians uh, play-by-play guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Hamilton obviously still going and is just great. I mean, I would put Tom Hamilton again up against any current play-by-play man, not only just baseball, but any sport. Jim Donovan. I mean, we've we have and we've had unbelievable broadcasters in this town. Unbelievable. We're spoiled as a, as a sports city, and it's just unbelievable to to think that we've had such great broadcasters in this town, and yet for the most part, <laughs> our teams have not won anything. Only one of them got the call. Well, two of them, if you do radio and TV, you got the call a championship. Absolutely. I think we, I've just been thinking this whole time you've been talking about Tom Hamilton. The crying shame is that he didn't get to call a championship in either 1997 or 2016. Yeah. Literally one game away in both yeah. situations. And then you go back to 2016. 18,801 days, and it's over. Cleveland, get up. Celebrate. The championship is yours. Fred McLeod, man. Fred McLeod. R.I.P. So, yeah, I just wanted to do that little tribute to Vince Scully and uh, just wanted to give a little reason why that was important to me. So, um, As we said, it was a very difficult week in terms of deaths in the sports world. Uh, 11-time NBA champion Bill Russell passed earlier this week. Another Uh, another long life well-lived Bill Russell. Um, You know, he, he was 88 years old. The greatest... You know, I don't think anybody can. I don't think anybody considers Bill Russell to be the greatest player of all time, but I will say he's the greatest winner of all time. Winner, consummate professional. He won eleven championships everything. in a thirteen-year span. That's incomprehensible. In a team, people. in a team sport, like that. Like, this so, isn't like Tiger Woods winning all those. Tiger majors Woods in golf or, or Federer, or, Nadal, like yeah, in, in tennis, tennis. Yeah, Djokovic. Right. Yeah, Lewis Hamilton in Formula One yes. or something like that. Like this was in a team sport. He had to, and and again, I'm, 
you know, I'm, I was about to say he had to drag four other guys to all these championships. Obviously, he played on some really good freaking teams. But at the center of it all was Bill Russell, and he was the greatest winner of all. And aptly named the NF, the NBA Finals MVP, named after Bill Russell, mm-hmm. because he was he the greatest winner in team. You know, a lot of people talk about Tom Brady, and Tom Brady's up there. Trust me, because winning seven championships in a team in a team sport that has 10 other guys on the field with you at the same time that's incredible but 11 championships in 13 years is just i mean you well you, you'll never see that again no never ever no ever. I, admittedly that was a different time there were fewer teams different there time was, different era there were restrictions yeah. on you know who you could get in certain situations, you know, there's no salary there's no caps. free agency. There's no free agency. It was not completely open competition like it is now. Still, I'm not taking anything away from what Bill Russell accomplished. So, yeah, we've had a tough week in sports, man. Tough week. But luckily, those two were long lives well-lived. You know, it it, it wasn't a, uh, a shock death of somebody gone too soon. You know, these guys lived long lives and lived them well. Like, I never thought I would name drop Kobe twice in the same episode, once negatively and once positively. But, like, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Like, you know, he had his life, unfortunately, taken away from him at a young age, which is much more tragic than, you know, and not to mention that, his daughter, too, which was even worse. So terrible. You know, I mean, shit happens in this life. You just never know. You can't never take a day for granted. Yep. Yep. Try to make the most of every day. I know, you know, I say that, and... I know for me, I don't always do that, but, you know. Sometimes you just get so dragged down on the rat race that you don't even yeah. really think about that. But, 100%. But, yeah. So, well, anyway, uh, that's going to do it for us on this episode of LOTL. Appreciate you guys listening, and thank you guys for indulging us on uh, delaying the episode for a day. Uh, we had some stuff go on beyond our control that didn't allow us to record yesterday, but it's all good. We are back and ready to roll. We will be back next week, uh, hopefully, at our normal scheduled day and time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's going to do it for us. Uh, you can follow us on social media at the LOTL Podcast. Let us know what you think about this whole Deshaun Watson saga. You know, it's not over. We had an, addi- an initial suspension ruling, and it just seems like we're still in the thick of the mud. So, um, yeah. So for me, Dan, for Steve, Hashtag Twitterless Steve. We're going to get him on Twitter. I'm telling you. We're going to do it. It's got to be before 11th of September. That's right. That's what they say. Uh, I'm Dan, and you've been listening to Living Off the Land, episode 222. Have a good night, everybody. Well, I don't know when you're listening to this, but uh, have a good one. We'll see you. Bye. Bye.